I'm going to turn your attention to the back middle portion of your worship guide. That's where you will find uh, the text that we'll be going through this morning in the sermon. Uh, We are going to be looking over the next couple of weeks on probably your favorite minor prophet, Haggai. I'm just kidding. Some of you had to look in your Bible just to make sure that there is, in fact, a minor prophet named Haggai. This is a very short book. There's only two chapters. Um, uh, And this book, as we read through it, the hope that will happen as we go through it is that it'll serve to wake us up a bit. Uh, This is the new year, new year, new me. (laughs) And so this is as good a time for any for us to refocus as churches, as, as individuals on the priority of seeking and building the kingdom of God first, of setting our priorities straight, of making the worship of God, our obedience to him, our dedication to serving his purposes, our first priority. Haggai is what's known as a post-exilic prophet. Uh, So that means that he served Israel in the time after the Babylonian exile, hence post-exilic. Haggai, uh, he preached sometime around 520 B.C. His ministry is very short. As we go through the book, you'll see it's time-stamped, so we know the particular dates in which he was preaching. But again, he he served after the exile. So if you know your history, if you know your biblical history, we know that as a consequence of ongoing disobedience and unfaithfulness to God, between the mid-590s and uh, mid-580s, centuries after the time of King David and King Solomon, What remained of the nation of Israel was conquered by the Babylonian Empire, just absolutely leveled, and its people were forced into exile. The Babylonian Empire, which is today in modern Iraq, far east from Israel, conquered nations in this way. They they, uh, amassed their armies, they went into a, a nation, and they crushed all military resistance. But that wasn't it. They would then remove from that nation all of its most powerful and influential and intelligent people. So they would remove royalty and nobility, the intelligentsia, artists, scientists, skilled craftspeople of all kinds, any kind of leader from that nation. They would bring out and bring them into exile into Babylon. And the goal with that is that they would take their skills, they would take their gifts and make the Babylonian empire greater. Now the Babylonian conquest, the, the Babylonian exile, is a, is a massive blow to the people of Israel. This is a watershed moment in history because Israel is the chosen people of God. They're the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs whom God himself had made special promises to. I will be your God. You will be my special people. You and your offspring, I will take care of you. I will live in the midst of you. Through you, All nations of the earth will be blessed. And it seemed to the the Jews at the time, when they were conquered, when they were exiled, that God had just forgotten about them. He'd forgotten all his promises. Jerusalem, after all, was destroyed. The temple, which was the symbolic seat of God's presence and favor, it had been desecrated and torn apart. But God had not forgotten his promises. And so after over 50 years, this is a full generation after the exile, there was a new empire, the Persian Empire. They began to rule in in Babylon. And there was a new king, King Cyrus, who in 539 declared that the Jews could return home and they could begin to rebuild Jerusalem. They could rebuild the temple. You have to understand this for the miracle it was. This was obviously God's doing. If you're familiar with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Bible, they deal with this first miraculous wave of Jews returning to the land to begin this sacred work. 
They could rebuild the temple. They could begin to worship God in a way that he had commanded so long ago. Again, in the Old Testament, you have to understand how significant the temple is. The temple is center ice for God's purposes in the world. The temple was the place where God himself, eternal, almighty, omnipotent, omnipresent, had promised to dwell in a special way in the midst of his people. So this, the, the, the temple was the central hub where all of God's blessings emanated and went outwards to bless all the nations of the earth. So, what could be more important to the 40,000 or so returning Jewish exiles, returning to Jerusalem, what could be more important to them than rebuilding the temple? What could be a greater priority to them than to restore worship and the centrality of God in their lives? What could be more important to them? What could bring them greater joy than being back, living in the very presence of God Almighty as represented in the temple? But what we find in the book of Haggai, I'm going to invite Alistair forward to read for us the first chapter. What we find is that some 20 years after the exiles have returned, the temple remained unbuilt. They had laid the foundation, they had built an altar so that they could do sacrifices, but the house of God, as the temple was known, still lay in utter ruin. What was going on here? What had happened? And it's at this moment that God sends his prophet, his mouthpiece, Haggai, and he will speak the very words of God, calling his people to refocus, to make again the worship of God and their full obedience to his word, their first priority in life. Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a, into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed, <coughs> excuse me, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. 
And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of the hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, would you show us what's distracting us from what you've called us to be and to do? Would you reveal to us, through your word, what things have taken greater priority in our hearts? What people have taken your spot in our hearts in worship and service? Would you strengthen our hands and stir our hearts today by your spirit, which was at work in the time of Haggai? Would we become people who strive to do that which pleases you and brings you glory? Speak to us now, we ask. Help us to hear your voice. Cause us to fear you, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. The God of the Bible is a speaking God. He speaks in a clear voice, giving instruction through his prophets. In verse 1, we learn that God spoke specifically, look at it, in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month on the first day of the month. That's as specific as you can get. This is August 29th, 520 BC. God spoke these words to his people through the prophet Haggai. Verse 1, look at it again. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. Look at verse 13. Again, just for more on, on this is God speaking here. God, God spoke these words through Haggai, his messenger. But verse 13 says it clearly. But this was the Lord's message. So listen. What we're hearing this morning isn't man's opinion. We're listening to God Almighty speak to us together. It's part of the reason why we like to study the minor prophets uh, at the beginning of the year. It's kind of a reminder that God is a speaking God. Listen to what he has to say to you. God has something to say. In verses 1 and verses 12, it says specifically to Zerubbabel. This is a great name if you're thinking of a name for a newborn kid. He is the governor of Judah. This means he is the highest ranking official who's returned from Babylon. Not quite a king even though he's in the line of David, but he has an important leadership position, kind of a liaison between the Persian Empire and Israel. God has something specific to say to um, the high priest, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, another great name. The high priest was responsible for ensuring the holiness, the religious education and instruction of Israel. And he's also just speaking a word to the people of God. Look at verse 12. He calls them the remnant people. This is a small number of people who've returned from exile. Ezra puts it at about 40,000 or so. In other words, this word from Haggai, which we're listening to right now, is for the insiders. It's for the people of God, the church folk. He's speaking to the people who take their faith seriously, or at least would really like to, who want to serve God. And this is what God's saying through Haggai. You've lost focus. You've been distracted from what I've called you to. Remember, in history, Israel had been laid waste just a generation ago. Uh, there wasn't much left of the nation at all when these exiles returned. The fields hadn't been plowed or, or tilled for decades. The houses had been left uncared for for 70-some years. There was no remaining businesses or infrastructure or institutions. There was nothing going on in Israel. Babylon, on the other hand, was thriving it was the metropolis of the east. The Jews, while they were forced to be there, they had done very well for themselves. They'd built houses, raised families, started businesses. Things were relatively good, right? It might have actually been smart for business uh, to just stay in Babylon, but not these people. 
Those who left Babylon were committed. They were the remnant. They were the few of a whole nation who took on this enormous, impossible task of settling back into the land when others wouldn't. They, together, were trying to rebuild a fallen nation to restore the worship of Yahweh. But just a few years after after landing, just 20 years or so, the work of the temple had stagnated. It had slowed down. They, They had started the work, and then they stopped. And there was a saying that had developed among the people, either spoken out loud or just assumed. You can look at it at verse 2. God says this, These people, these insiders, these church folk, they say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The time has not yet come. That's how they justified the incomplete temple in their midst. It's not time for us to refocus entirely on the temple's work. There's other things that we need to do first, logically, right? We need to get our own houses in order. We need to get businesses thriving and started, and then we'll get to the temple. In chapter 1 of Haggai, the people of God, the insiders, had become slack in their calling. They're failing to live and act as God's called them. And so through Haggai, God both warns and encourages them, just as he now warns and encourages us. So we too, we who call ourselves Christians, church people, insiders, we're tempted to always lose focus, to not have our priorities straight, to put other things, other people, even good things, ahead of the worship and obedience to God that we're called to. So both, so Haggai, this morning, he will both warn and encourage us. That's our outline this morning. First, be warned. Building your own kingdom will lead to emptiness. Second, be encouraged. Building God's kingdom will lead to wholeness. So be, be warned, be encouraged. First, be warned. In verses 1 through 11, God calls out the leaders and the remnant of Israel. Instead of focusing on God's kingdom and God's work, they've been focused on building their own kingdoms. And God warns them. He says that this is an empty, this is a fruitless pursuit. Look at verse 4. God asks, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house while God's house the temple lies in ruins see the people have been hard at work it seems but not for God they've been hard at work for themselves they've been hustling these last 20 years but not for God's pleasure and glory for their own The paneled house is referred to here. It might be referring to a luxurious feature in these houses. Cedar paneling was kind of a common adornment in royal palaces back then, but it also just might refer to the normal kind of decor that houses would receive at the time. It's like us building a deck or, you know, putting up a nice trim of some sort. Either way, the point's the same. The people are preoccupied with their own houses, with their own lives. When God's home... The temple, the place where he's chosen to dwell with his people, it's in ruins. For the people, making their own lives secure and comfortable, that is their primary focus. And the place of God in their lives is of secondary importance. Look at the second half of verse 9. God again says, My house lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Listen, it's not that the people have no resources and no energy and no ambition, no creative thinking, no hustle. No, it's not that they have nothing to offer to God. Rather, they've chosen to spend their resources, their energy, their ambition on themselves, on their homes. They're saying, our house first, God's second. 
They're saying, look, we have limited resources here. So let me establish my kingdom first. And later, if I have time, if I have extra energy and resources, I can consider God's. Now, I see, I see a lot of this. I see a lot of it in my own heart. I see it in the church and among Christians. It, this is not an outright rejection of serving God in the kingdom, right? We know and we say out loud that serving others, being generous with our money uh, towards the church and towards the poor, uh, giving our time and our effort for others' good, this is a good thing. But we're just a little bit busy right now. We've got our own stuff to take care of. We'd like to serve more and to give more, and we plan on doing it later, after our own affairs are dealt with. You hear, I'll serve others. I, I really will. I'll serve the church when I have more time. I'm pretty busy with work right now, so when things lighten up, that's when I'll make attending a home group or serving others in this church or, or those in my neighborhood. That's when I'll make it a priority. Or I'll start giving financially to the church generously later. But right now I'm a student. I've got a car payment. I've got a mortgage. I've got a vacation that I'm planning on. I've got student loans that need to be paid back. I've got a retirement fund that I've been neglecting the last couple of years. In verses 5 through 6, Haggai asks them to consider, what are you doing? He says this a couple times, consider your ways. He asks them to take a long, sober look at their lives. Are you actually satisfied with this way of living? Has this way of life, this selfish priority of your own home, has it brought you the deep joy and satisfaction that you expected it to? Look at verse 6. Haggai says, you've sown a lot, but not much has come from it. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but your thirst is not quenched. You clothe yourself, but you're not warm. You make money, but it's like you're putting it in a bag that's filled with holes. Easy come, easy go. See, building your own kingdom it leads to an emptiness. These things cannot fill you. Verses 10 through 11 also points that there's something supernatural to this. God providentially is drying things up. Their labor is in vain. In the time of Haggai, God caused a drought in the land. God wouldn't allow the people to achieve the personal fullness and satisfaction that they're chasing after. All of their pursuits, ultimately, despite their very best efforts, led to real emptiness. And so God pleads with them through his prophet, consider your ways. Change your priorities. Look at verse 7. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house, build my temple, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. See, God knows that this is what his people are made for. This is is what will fill them, to glorify God, to enjoy him above all other things, things that are here today and gone tomorrow. So God warns them. He pleads with them. Put first things first. Make me, make my kingdom your highest priority. Do it now. Building your kingdom will always end with emptiness. I've been going through R.C. Uh, J.C. Ryle's book, um, Thoughts for Young Men. It's, it's just fantastic. It was written in the 19th century. And Ryle, in this book, he is pleading with the young men of his day to serve God with their whole hearts, uh, to not put it off for another day. This is written to young men, but listen, it applies to all of us. But listen to what he's saying. He says, young men, do not be deceived. Don't think you can at will. Focus all your attention on your own kingdom or your own pleasures, and then go and serve God with ease later. 
It is a mockery to deal with God in your souls in such a fashion, and you may find to your loss that the thing cannot be done. Habits have deep roots. Our sin, once sin is allowed to settle in your heart, it will be not turned out simply at your bidding. Custom becomes second nature, and its chains are not easily broken. The prophet Jeremiah has well said, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Habits are like stones rolling downhill. The further they roll, the faster and more ungovernable their course. Habits, like trees, are strengthened by age. A boy may bend an oak when it is a sapling. A hundred men cannot root it up when it is a full-grown tree. So it is with your habits. The older, the stronger. The longer they have held possession, the harder they will be to cast out. They grow with our growth and strengthen with our strength. Every fresh act of sin or disobedience lessens fear and remorse, hardens our hearts, blunts the edge, edge of our conscience, and increases our evil inclination. Young men, you may fancy I am laying too much stress on this point, but if you had seen old men as I have on the brink of the grave without any feelings, seared, callous, dead, cold, hard as stone, you would not think so. Believe me, you cannot stand still in your souls. Habits of good or evil are daily strengthening in your hearts. Every day you are either getting nearer to God or further off. Every year that you continue unrepentant, the wall of division between you and heaven becomes higher and thicker, the gulf to be crossed deeper and broader. Oh, dread the hardening effect of constant lingering in sin. Listen to what Ryle says. He says, now is the accepted time. See that your decision not be put off until the winter of your days. If you do not seek the Lord when young, the strength of habit is such that you will probably Never seek him at all. I fear this, and therefore, I warn you. Listen to what Ryle is saying to the young men of his day. Listen to what the Lord is saying through Haggai to all of the returning exiles. Do not wait to serve God later. It may never happen. Habits are such, sin is such, that it binds you with strong chains. So do it now. Don't wait a moment longer. The time for obedience, for building up the temple, for giving of time and money and resources and your hustle for the kingdom of God is now. So that's part one. Be warned. Building your kingdom, it will ultimately lead to emptiness. But listen to part two. Be encouraged. Building God's kingdom leads to wholeness. It will lead to wholeness. Haggai is one of the very few successful prophets in the whole Bible. This does not happen often, if you're familiar with the prophets. Haggai speaks, and what happens? The people obey. They're changed. The warning lands on receptive hearts, and there is immediate change. There's another timestamp in verse 15. It says that, look at, look at verse 15, but by the 24th day of the sixth month, that's within 24 days of verse 1, the people had indeed gone up to the hills. They'd gotten wood. They'd gotten the supplies for the temple all prepared, ready to go. And they started the work on the temple in earnest. They changed their ways, changed their priorities, and started to serve God in earnest. What an amazing thing that happened. 
Look at verse 12. All the insiders, all the leaders, all the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, and the people feared him. This is, this is not saying that they were shaking in their boots, but rather they reverenced him appropriately, rightly. They worshipped him. They held God now as their highest regard. It doesn't mean that they didn't care about their homes or their families or their jobs, but that they placed God in his right place. They feared him more than they feared other things, secondary things. They honored him above themselves in their homes. Look at verse 13. Look at these changes that are happening. Haggai spoke the Lord's message to this people. He said, I am with you, declares the Lord. Look at verse 14. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the spirit of all the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. This wasn't just external, arm-twisting, threatening change. Their spirits and affections were stirred. They were changed from the inside out. This picture that we're seeing in Haggai chapter 1, and there's more to come in the next chapter, this is an incredible picture of the wholeness that God has promised to his people, of life as it was made to be lived, the people of God, fearing and honoring God in the first priority, with joy serving him together, being filled with his spirit, having their hearts changed, being comforted by his presence, that he is God and he is with them. This this, This is the promise that Psalm 16 makes, that they're experiencing here. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The people in Haggai chapter 1 are experiencing this wholeness, and it's found not as they pursue their own homes and their own lives in the first place, but by pursuing God's kingdom. Over the next few weeks as we're in Haggai, I want us and uh, as a church, and I want us as individuals to refocus on the need to put God's work first in our lives, of making the worship of God, our obedience to him, our dedication to serving his purposes here in Halifax, here in this church, our first priority. So let me ask you this. Do your priorities in life right now line up with God's? Whose kingdom are you eagerly building Have you too, you who might be very faithful, who love God, who want to serve him, have you become complacent, putting off till tomorrow what God's calling you to do today? Hear what God says to you. He says, go to the hills, bring wood, build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Let's end with this. If you're like me, you know that in yourself, this kind of change, this drastic shift in priorities is is a paradigm shift, something that we can't do ourselves. Some of our habits feel like the chains that Ryle is talking about. We've rolled a stone downhill, and it feels like we cannot stop its descent. Some of our habits, some of our priorities feel so ingrained that we feel helpless to make God our first priority. What we realize is that cosmetic change won't do. A New Year's resolution will not cut deep enough. We need deep heart-level change. What we want is wholeness. We're broken, fragmented people. We need to be made whole people. We want to be like this people, described in Haggai chapter 1, fearing and honoring God first, serving Him with joy, being filled with His Spirit, having our hearts changed, and being comforted with His presence to know that God is with us. And we can't do this on our own. In Haggai, we catch a glimpse of what's required. The Lord himself must come to his complacent, slack people. That's exactly what he does. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. God takes the initiative. He goes to them. He sends his prophet Haggai to speak his words of warning 
and his words of encouragement to his people. By his spirit, God acts. He stirs the hearts of the people and changes them from the inside out. And this foreshadows the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Christ himself didn't wait for us to come to him. He came for us. He didn't wait for us to have our act together, but he came for us who are trapped in chains. He came to us, people who are focused on our own priorities, on our own kingdom, and he spoke as a prophet God's truth for us. But unlike Haggai who died or the temple which was here today and gone tomorrow, Jesus is the true temple. He is God with us. And even death couldn't conquer him. See, when Christ gave himself for us and for our sins on the cross, one of the chief ends of his death was not only the forgiveness of our sins and our selfishness, but also a drastic transformation of our own hearts. You and I do not have the power to change ourselves, and so we must look to Christ for this heart change and this heart renewal spoken of in the prophets. Hear hear these words from Ezekiel chapter 26, another prophet like Haggai who, who made these promises looking forward to the work of Christ. God himself saying, I will one day, through the work of the Messiah, give you a new heart. I'm not going to just do cosmetic changes for you. I'm going to put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And listen, this great promise, you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is the great thing that we are called to, the wholeness that can be ours as we place the worship of God and joyful obedience to his word first in our hearts. But this is something that we must receive from Christ. So together, let's look to Christ, be changed by the sacrificial love, and find wholeness together as we make his kingdom our greatest priority. Let's pray together. I invite you to turn in your worship guide to the Lord's Prayer, which we'll pray together. Father, we ask that you would bless us as a church. Would you wake us up? Would you refocus us? Would we be able to take accurate stock in the people and the positions in our life which may have supplanted you in goodness. Some of these things we know are not evil in themselves. It would be unfaithful for us to to neglect them, and yet we must not neglect you as first in our hearts. And so, Lord, send your spirit now. Move our hearts. Stir them up. Thank you for Christ who came for us when we were focused on ourselves. Thank you for his selflessness, and through his selfless love, we can be changed. And so, Father, we, we, we look to the work of your kingdom, the work of seeing your will be done, as we pray the prayer that our Lord Jesus himself taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.